But again, not just any kind of leadership. We want to put an emphasis on spiritual leadership. And an emphasis on the spiritual aspect of what it means to be a leader in the body of Christ. Now, before you go tuning me out for the rest of our time together this morning, I want you to realize that this sermon is for you. You may not think that you're a leader in a certain ministry or in a certain capacity, but you are a leader. We are all leaders. We all have influence over someone or something. There are plenty of people who are just a few steps behind us in this life. They may have been, uh, become a believer around the same time. They may have chosen to follow Jesus around the same time in their life. But, but you're just a few further steps down the road, and you can share that experience. You can share what God has taught you with them. You are a leader in the lives of other people. Actually, I want us to know that it's not just having an opportunity to share and be a leader in someone else's life. It's a responsibility. We have a responsibility. Now, I know when we talk about things in the religious world, we don't like talking about obligation and and requirements, because that sounds somehow the opposite of what God means by grace and, and love and unconditional love and all those things that say, I don't have to earn God's love. He loves me, and, and I don't have to earn my, my salvation. It's, it's given to me through Jesus Christ and through believing in him. And, and that's true. Those are all true things, but there is a responsibility we are given as children of God, and that is using the God-given influence we have in the lives of others. Welcome, welcome. It's good to see so many young faces up here in the front paying attention to me. Yeah, right? Yeah. Janice, I meant the front row. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to regret that later. I apologize. I apologize. See, that's, that's an example, teams, this is good. This is one of those examples of being a bad influence and not being <laughs> using your leadership opportunity in the way God intended it to. We have, we have an opportunity as children of God, as followers of Jesus, to use the God-given responsibility, or the gifts that God has given us in a responsible way to influence others. And, and why is this important for, for us to emphasize together this morning? Because this world is not just about you, right? You and I are a part of, of a much bigger story that transcends our culture, that transcends time, that, that transcends the, 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 the geography in which we find ourselves living in at the time. We are a part of God's story of creation, of man's fall into sin. We're, we're part of God's story of, of rescue and redemption of mankind. And we're part of God's recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. There is a story that God has been telling since the beginning of time that you and I are a part of. And yet sometimes it's so easy in the midst of this life we live to lose sight of that. To, to, to start to think about the, the, the time we've been given, the day-to-day -day living that we do, and to think that it revolves around our lives. But it's important to me that we acknowledge as a church family that that this world is not just about you. It's about something that God is doing in you and through you, but it's bigger than us. We have a responsibility to take a part in that story, 
We, we have a responsibility to play a role in, in, in taking our leadership seriously and, and figuring out where God is calling us to exercise that influence in his story. And so today, we're going to consider what it looks like to be leaders, to, to live as a spiritual leader, in particular with the end in mind. How to live right now knowing that there is a story being written, that the conclusion to the story has been written, and knowing what the conclusion is, we want to live today with that end in mind. So, so here in 2 Timothy, we're going to look at a passage in which Paul is writing a, an urgent letter to his son in the faith, this Timothy. Now, if you've ever gone on a, a trip and, and left instructions for, for a pet sitter or, or a babysitter, you may have an idea of what 2 Timothy is actually all about. I, I know that when Tar and I go away on trips, she's really good at this. She'll have two or three pages of detailed instructions that she is leaving for, for the, the babysitter or the pet sitter. Uh, and so if you've ever pet sat for us or... Uh, I don't know if any of you have babysat for us over time, but, but if you've done that, you know what I'm talking about here. There are detailed instructions that she gives to the person who we're entrusting the care of our pets to. And, and, and that's what Paul is writing to Timothy with a desire to do. He's writing instructions to Timothy even now as Paul is preparing to embark on a long journey himself, this final part of his journey. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that Pastor Moses taught us that, that when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, he's sitting in a cold, dark prison cell in Rome. This was not house arrest. This was not cozy. This was not comfortable. He, he was sitting in a prison cell, and he knew at this point that his end was near. Paul had known for a while that, that his journey would lead to a place where he would be able to proclaim the gospel, but also would lead to his death. And so as Paul's writing this and thinking about his imminent end, he's also thinking about how Timothy can live well and also finish well. Timothy's, or Paul's not just concerned about himself finishing well, he's concerned about giving instructions to Timothy so that Timothy could live well as a leader and finish well as a leader. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at about four, four or five verses here uh, in the early verses of, of the first chapter. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Paul writes this. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control." Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We thank you for Paul's writing this letter to Timothy. We thank you for not just what it accomplished in Timothy's life, but Lord, what you intend it to accomplish in our lives this morning. I pray, Lord, that, that your living and active word would have its way in us. Open our minds to what you are saying. 
Empower our hearts to have courage in embracing by faith the things that you teach us and desire us to do as we walk in faith and follow your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, as I alluded to, or as I spoke to a moment ago, Paul is finishing well, right? It's important that we understand that Paul's life is coming to a conclusion, and he is finishing well. Toward the end of this very letter, he'll tell Timothy in chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. But notice, this is not where he starts, right? He, he doesn't begin there. He, he begins with gratitude. He, he begins in this place of, of thanking God whom I serve. See, finishing well for Paul required not that he lived a good life, but that he recognized the one who was responsible for him finishing well, and he gives thanks to God for this. He recognizes that it's his heavenly father who has given him the ability to finish the race well. See, I think if we look at Paul's ministry, we'd see that he makes it clear throughout his time in ministry that he struggled to live well, right? Left to his own devices, it was the desires of his flesh that he would feed. It, it, it would give attention to, to the desires of his inmost being that, that, would, that would drive what he would do if, if he was left to do things on his own. When, when writing to the church in Rome, he tells them in, in chapter 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How many of us can relate to what Paul is, is saying there, right? We, we know what we want to do, but in reality, the evil that we do not want to do is the, thing, the very thing that keeps happening over and over again. We, we want to honor God. We, we want to do good. We want to obey and do what is right and good and, and true. We want to be confident that our influence is good and not bad. We, we want to know that God is using us for good purposes. In the lives of our children, the next generation, in the lives of our neighbors, in, in our church, we, we want to do what is good and right. But man, that persistent flesh keeps showing up, right? My ego gets wounded, so I respond with, with kind of girding up my pride, protecting myself with, with being more prideful and, and, and arrogant, rather than responding in humility. You know what? It's so much easier to be selfish than to put the needs of others ahead of my own, to be even concerned about others' needs. It feels natural, so natural to give in to whatever the desires of my flesh are. And it feels so difficult, so unnatural to say no to those desires. Right? And yet, for Paul, though it was so hard for him to say no to his flesh, to deny these, these desires, he knew that living and finishing well required it. But no matter how hard he tried, the good he wanted to do, he could not do. And instead, the, the, 
the practices of evil that he does not want to do, he does. See, the good news here is that, that this is not the finish line that Paul was talking about. In fact, it, it actually just helps us see the, the chasm that stands between our life in the flesh and the finish line of life in the spirit that, that Paul will show us, will reveal to us, which actually is the finish line. So the finish line he describes in his first letter to Timothy. You may remember we've looked at this verse before, but in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, the aim of our charge, the, the purpose of our ministry, the, the aim of our lives is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For Paul, finishing well means becoming a character of Christ-like love, a divine love, a love which we have first received from God through Jesus Christ. And then as a result of that, as a result of that divine love taking over and, and invading our, our very core of our being, that there is a, a, a character, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So I think Paul recognized that where he was and where he wanted to be, the, the life in the flesh and the finish line of life in the spirit that he wanted to be at at the end of his life was only possible by the power of God. The author of Hebrews teaches us in chapter 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... Right? So we can be confident in standing at that finish line, knowing that we have lived well and finished well. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So I think Paul, here in writing to Timothy in this second letter, is confident that he is finishing well, not because of how he's lived his life, but because of the sincere faith he's placed in Jesus, but because of the work that Jesus has done for him, right? He had confidence even when facing death because Jesus gave him a new life that wasn't defined by his flesh. It wasn't defined by all the good that he could not do or, or wasn't doing. It wasn't defined by all the evil that he didn't want to do but was still doing. It was defined by his faith in what Jesus had done on his behalf. See, Paul had confidence that God accepted him that God did more than accept him. He welcomed him. He adopted him into the family of God because of Jesus' death on the cross, which meant that Paul could have a heart that had been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, having nothing evil in his inmost being that, that gave direction to his life, the, the, good, the, the, the paths that he chose, meant that he was left with a good conscience. Do, do you see this? Do you notice what, what, what's happening here? So the finish line that, that Paul crossed and that he told Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where the aim of their ministry was, a, was love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, was made possible because Jesus' death was unlike 
any other human beings. Jesus' death was a sacrifice unto God for the forgiveness of our sins. Accepting this meant that Paul was enabled to cross the chasm between his flesh and the finish line. I don't care if we're young or old, we all wrestle, we all struggle with the things of living out the flesh. Right? We don't want to do the things we do. If we were, be honest with yourself. Don't worry about being honest with me or anyone else around you right now. Be honest with yourself. There are things that go on inside your heart and your mind that you wish were not there. In fact, for some of us, we've walked down that road so far that, that we don't even realize, we don't even know that we're hurting ourselves by believing these lies and these things that are not true. But the good news for us this morning is that as hopeless as we feel in the flesh, we have hope to cross that finish line well as Paul has because we have such a great high priest who gives us confidence to have a good conscience, not an evil conscience. I wish I knew this when I was younger. I wish I knew this when I was a teenager, when, when I struggled with knowing kind of what my purpose was, what my, where was I going, what was my life going to be like some, someday, and worrying about it and feeling anxious and thinking, I'm going to mess it up at this early age. But the reality is that with God, we have a God who takes hold of our lives through faith and will carry us across that chasm of feeling insecure and unable to produce and, and accomplish victories that we think the world is telling us we need to have and to carry us to a finish line where we can stand not timidly or, or insecurely but confidently before God. By the way, I love how I'm looking at the teens down here in the front row and they're all like looking around like trying not to make eye contact with me like I'm going to call you guys out or something like that. Don't worry, I won't. See, when, when Paul was writing the second letter, his second letter to Timothy, and while he's sitting in, in, in prison, knowing that his, his death was imminent, knowing that he would be executed, he's filled with gratitude. He, he's thankful to God. I give thanks to God, who, the God whom I serve. Because why? Because God enables him to finish well with a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. So here is what I want us to, to pay attention to this morning. Where Paul stands at the finish line, he has some great wisdom to share with us. There's no shame or regret in, in, in what Paul has written here for us. In, in fact, let me just say, I mean, in, in chapter 1, he says... Uh, I'm filled, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you. There's no regret. He's got no reason to, to feel like his conscience is not clear. He's confident. And he only desires now to pass on this confidence to his son in the faith, Timothy. He wants Timothy to not just finish well, but to live well as Paul has learned to do. And, and, and so from this finish line, Paul can teach all of us how to live well and finish well. 
He says right away, he says to live well through, through the finish line is to embody a sincere faith. In verse 5 of our passage, Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. See, the faith that Paul is talking about here is special. Now, I believe that vegetables are good for me, right? I think they're good for me to eat, but I don't necessarily eat my vegetables at every meal. I, let me back. I not don't necessarily. That sounds misleading. I don't eat my vegetables at every meal. Now, one could say that I don't sincerely believe that vegetables are good for me because if I did, I'd be eating them regularly, right? Like if I actually believed that they were good for me, then I'd eat them knowing that what I was eating was good for my body, good for my physical health. My belief in the goodness of vegetables is not the kind of faith that Paul's talking about here. So the, the sincere faith that Paul talks about here is a faith that, that indwells, that inhabits, that, that overwhelmingly fills the person who holds that faith. And that faith guides their entire life. It's a faith that shapes our inmost being. And out of that overflow of our inmost being, we live our lives in response to that. Right? A sincere faith is, is not restricted to an idea like, yeah, I believe that the idea of vegetables being good for me is a good thing, so I'm going to say I believe in that. A sincere faith is something that inhabits us, that we embody, that we live out. It guides the way and directs the way we live our lives. So something that I think is interesting for us to know is that this is a faith that did not first crop up in the life of Timothy, but had been around for generations. See, Timothy, we're told in the scriptures that his father wasn't necessarily a follower of Jesus. That his father, father was, was, uh, was someone who would, wasn't following Jesus, didn't grow up in the faith, didn't know the, the truths, the doctrines of the Christian faith. But in those days, it was the father's responsibility to teach and pass on the faith and the religious truths to their kids. And yet Paul will tell us later on in chapter 3 that, that Timothy knew from his childhood about the Christian faith and about what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. How is this possible? How could this be for Timothy, whose own dad didn't believe in Jesus, wouldn't follow Jesus, wasn't teaching Timothy about the faith? How is it possible for him to embody a genuine faith? Not just saying, yeah, yeah, Christianity is a good thing, I like it, but actually living it out. How is this possible? Well, it's because Timothy grew up with a grandmother and a mother who embodied a genuine faith. See, Paul says that their faith dwelt in them just as it dwells in Timothy. The, the Greek word he uses for dwelt is enoikeo, 
right? It's, it's a word which means to exist or to be situated in. It's not just this idea or ideology that we like to think about or that we would say, yeah, I, I think that's good. It, it, it's not like the idea of vegetables being good for you that you say, yeah, that's, I affirm that. It's actually a, a, a truth that, you, that dwells in you, that's a part of you, right? That, that exists and is situated inside your inmost being. See, the faith that was situated in, in, in his grandmother and, and in his mother was most important to shaping how Timothy grew up in the faith. Why? Because it was a faith that was visible to Timothy. Because they embodied the faith. The faith that dwelt in them was the faith that they embodied to the world around them. And, and so for Timothy, this faith which was visible was the faith that he caught See, what, what concerns me so much for the church is that many followers of Jesus treat the Christian faith like, like I treat my belief in vegetables. Right? Like I'll eat vegetables if I, if, if I feel like it or, or if they've been covered in enough cheese or ranch dressing. <laughs> but that's, that's only once in a while, right? That's only when I feel like it that I'm going to go ahead and pick up that fork and, and eat those vegetables. This shouldn't be true of how I live my life in Christ. I, I shouldn't be obedient to Jesus only when it's convenient or when it feels good or when it's tasty, right? To, to embody a sincere faith as, as Lois and Eunice and, and now Timothy were doing is to say yes and amen to everything in Jesus and then doing it and then living it out. Right? Christianity is not a, a, a belief that, that is kept to the privacy of our own hearts and minds. See, Paul made it clear that, that Timothy's faith, that, that, that Lois's faith, that Eunice's faith was visible and tangible. It wasn't just some idea that, she, that, that, that they aligned themselves with and said, yeah, we like this idea, we think it sounds good. Like, we're, we're going we're gonna to say this describes part of my life. We're going to live it out. It, their faith was sincere. It was genuine. See, Timothy's faith was born out of the visible and tangible faith of his grandmother and his mother. And so for us this morning, we need to understand that spiritual leadership lived well is living a sincere faith for others to see and be influenced by. It means that humility is not some future ideal that we, we hope to one day be. It means it's something we practice day in and day out. Apologizing, forgiving, showing grace, being compassionate, merciful, loving someone in the fullness of how the Bible teaches us to love. Christianity is not some, some idea that we, we want to affirm, but it's a way of living that needs to be visible, that, that, that's in congruence with what we think and feel and, and believe in our inmost being and how we live our lives before other people. But to live well and to finish well is not just to embody this faith. 
It's not just to, to be concerned about my outward actions. It, it, it is to be concerned about congruency, this integrity between my inner person and my outer person, the way I, the, the, what, I, what I believe on my inner being and how I'm living my life outwardly. But it's also more than that. It also means practicing the gifts that we've been given. In other words, Christianity is not something we believe in and then feel like, hey, we made it, we're good, we're now inside the bubble of Christianity and so things are going to be great now, right? We're not just comfortably treading water while we're waiting for the end. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, Paul tells Timothy, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. For this reason. For what reason? For the reason, for speaking, thinking of this genuine, sincere faith which you have been given by God. As it's come down through the family lineage of your grandmother and your mother. And now, you, and now dwells in you this gift of faith which is in you. Now go and use it. Right, Christianity is a gift. Yeah, to be rescued from our sin and the desires of our flesh, but it's a gift that's more than that. Christianity is more than being saved from something, it's being saved to something. Because of the life that Timothy now lived, because of the faith that dwelled in him, he has a new purpose. You too have a new purpose as a child of God. You too have been saved from something. Praise God that we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But you've been saved to something. And that new purpose, that something you've been saved to, is not something that we're born with, but something we are given, something we are receiving in that time, when that moment we become a child of God. For Timothy, he was given the gift of preaching. And this was a gift that had been identified a long time ago when the elders of the church and Paul laid their hands on him and set him apart for the preaching and the ministry. Right? He'd been commissioned. He'd been given authority to go out and preach the word by the leaders of the church, by the people of God and set apart to shepherd the church. Now, this idea of laying on of hands was a tradition in those times where they would lay hands on someone and affirm them. Affirm the gifts that they've seen, that, 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 that the elders and leaders have seen in this person. So we affirm this gift. Now go and use it. Exercise it. And so for Timothy, this is an, a special moment that had happened where God had given him the spiritual gift of preaching that Paul and the other elders acknowledge. And they want to they encourage him. They want to affirm him. They, 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 know, they probably know that he's dealing with some, some sense of, of fear or insecurity, of just being young. And they know, go and use this gift. God has given it to you. You may be insecure about it because it's in, unfamiliar to you. you. You've not always lived your life with this gift. But God has given you a gift. Now go and use it. Church, if you believe that Jesus' death has sprinkled your heart clean and made it new, if you believe that you're forgiven in Christ, then you too have a spiritual gift to exercise. Whether you're young or old or somewhere in between, you have a gift that you should be exercising today, not someday, today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells us, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. These gifts are given to each of the children of God. You can look up other passages in the Bible that talk about gifts from a different angle, some in, in Romans and Ephesians. But what you need to know, these gifts are given to us. We're not born with them. Many of us struggle with feeling our worth when we, when we compare ourselves to other people. We think, well, I'm not very fast, or I'm not witty, or I'm not, you know, uh, as fill-in-the-blank strong as Pastor Dan is, Right? <laughs> But that's not what a spiritual gift is. This is not a skill that we're born with. A spiritual gift is a gift that God gives to each of his children for a purpose, for the common good of the body of Christ. So I wonder this morning, do you know, do you know what your spiritual gift is? Do you know what spiritual gift God has given you to use for the common good? These spiritual gifts are not based on your ability or disability. They're not based on your gender or your age or what country you grew up in. These gifts are part of the new creation that you have been made into through your faith in Jesus Christ, that his death on the cross has sprinkled your heart clean. And so now you live with a clear conscience and can live well and finish well but part of that living well is using the gift that God has given you. Christianity is not some spectator sport. Many of us will go home today and we're going to watch the NFL or, or maybe we'll watch playoff baseball or, or, or even a NASCAR race. Those, those are spectator sports. The expectation when you watch one of those is you should be getting some delicious snacks. You should be relaxing. You should be enjoying them. Right? You are meant to be entertained and to take in that experience. That's a good thing. That's the purpose of what those sports are for all of us, unless we're one of the athletes that are, that are involved in it. But this isn't true of what it means to follow Jesus. Our spiritual gifts are meant to be used for the common good. Or, or as Paul talks about in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, to, to bring about love. From, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. <laughs> Your gift that, that, that God has uniquely given you needs to be used, needs to be exercised, so that we as a church might see the love of Jesus overwhelm and transform the families of our community. Right? It, needs, it needs to not be Pastor Dan or, or, or Jen Canapari sitting up here from the front talking to us. We all need to be engaged in this, right? And so to, to live well and to finish well, Paul teaches Timothy and he tells us that we've got we've to tend to the crops. We've got to tend to the crops. If a farmer wants a particular outcome, for his crops, if he wants a, a good and healthy and strong harvest, what does he need to do? 
He needs to tend to the crops, right? He needs to not think that he's going to plant them in the spring and then, then like set them up and walk away and they're going to be good and he'll have a nice rich harvest in the fall. And, and so it is for us. If we want to live our lives well and finish them with a particular outcome, if you, if you care about where your life is going and what the outcome of your life is, then we too have to tend to our daily lives and the gifts that we've been given, right? This past year, I, I tried growing a fig tree and, uh, and what I learned is that fig trees, they need a lot more tending to than what I realized. They need more water, and they need less sunlight. See, my, my, my lack of tending resulted in a fruitless fig tree that had died. Now, in a similar way, Paul uses language around tending to a fire to communicate what role our spiritual gifts play in our daily lives. We don't need to be an expert in all things, but we should become proficient on a daily basis, intending on a daily basis to the area of our giftedness. And this happens as we fan into flame the gift of God, as Paul has written. Now, depending on what translation you read, it may say kindle afresh or rekindle or stir up. God's gift, regardless of how your Bible has written it or, or how it reads, the picture Paul draws for us here is, is the difference between a bunch of simmering coals and, and a roaring fire. See, a, a fire takes work. Now, it's not just one of those set it and forget it things. We, we live in a day and age where we can now go to a thermostat. We can set a schedule on the thermostat, or we can just go and turn the temperature to the temperature we want and walk away and expect that to be the temperature in our room, in our house, wherever we are. But that's not true with a fire. With a fire, you have to keep an eye on it. You have to add wood when it's appropriate. You have to reposition the wood to make sure that there's enough oxygen flowing to the fire so that the fire picks up and burns well. And this is the way it is with our spiritual gifts. Many of us treat our spiritual gifts as a thermostat. We acknowledge it's there. We say what we want. We walk away and expect it to do what we want it to do. But that's not how our spiritual gifts work. They require that we think about using them. That when we think about what gift God has given us, we need to think about using them. Think about the opportunities that God has put before us to use those gifts. We need, to, we need to use them so we can learn how to use them better. Some of us need to, to kind of study what these spiritual gifts are and how they can be used. Our spiritual gifts are meant to be tended to every day so that the fire can grow and bring warmth to the people around the fire. Our, our spiritual gifts are meant to be used for the common good, but if you just let them burn out, if you let them dwindle down to these, these, these simmering coals, they're useful for nothing. To go back to the farming analogy, if you want to enjoy the harvest, then you really you have to tend to the crops. You have to make sure they're getting water. You have to protect them against Invasive species like bugs and, and birds and all those other things. You've got you've to make sure they have the space they need to grow, the good soil. You need to tend to them. And so lastly, if we want to live well and finish well, the only way we're going to tend to those crops well is if we depend on the Holy Spirit. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So I think it's important that you and I take hold of what it means to have a sincere and genuine faith dwelling in us. To, to understand what it means to have a sincere, uh, genuine faith dwelling in us. It, it means that we're children of God, that we've been adopted by God, and, and, and because we've been adopted by God and given his spirit, his spirit dwells in us and empowers us. Right? As I challenge us to tend the crops, how many of us felt like, oh great, I've got to do more work, or I'm not doing enough for God. Or, 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 man, I, I just, I don't think I'm good enough at that, right? All the questions of doubt run into your mind. But what we see and understand about God's design for the gifts that he's given us is not only has he given us those gifts, he empowers us to use those gifts through the Holy Spirit, which he has given us at our birth into his family. And that spirit does not make us afraid of our future or our well-being or our unknown. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that, that this spirit is the Holy Spirit that teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father, as children depending on their heavenly Father. So it's important for us to understand the Holy Spirit in you is not producing fear. If you're experiencing fear or anxiety or worry, as I have many, many times, we need to stop and tell ourselves this is not from the Lord because that's not what the Holy Spirit in us does. The Holy Spirit in us provides power and love and self-control. This is what a sincere faith, it takes over your, uh, what a sincere faith is, it takes over your life and, and shapes it in love and power and self-control. In, in the Old Testament, the word for power that Paul uses referenced oftentimes a mighty army. It's something strong and powerful. It refers to strength. But, but more than that, I think King David helps us to understand more about power in, in one of the songs he wrote in Psalm 68. He writes this in, in Psalm 68. Ascribe power to God. Give God credit for power as it really is. God is the source of power. Whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. See, recognizing our power and our strength comes from God through his Holy Spirit. This is the definition of worship. When we stand up to sing songs on Sunday morning, we are doing what King David has done. We're intending to do what King David has done. We're not standing up to sing because the worship directors are telling us to sing. We're standing up to sing so that we can give voice to the true source of our power and our strength and our forgiveness. We're ascribing power to God. We're saying, God, power comes from you, and you give power to your children. This is what true worship is, ascribing to God what is his due. God has done more than give us a spiritual gift that can be used for the common good. He's given us his Holy Spirit that empowers us to use that spiritual gift. See, far too often I hear followers of Jesus struggling with insecurity in their gift and their calling. Far too often I hear us 
think, you know, either A, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Great, well, go figure it out. Go read the Bible. Go ask those close to you. You know, what, what sort of gift, if you could look at this list of spiritual gifts, what gift would, might you see me exercising in my life? Lean on the body of Christ to identify what your gift is. It's not a science. There are spiritual gift assessments out there that help you identify it, but they're, they're not the scriptures. They're not the Bible. God does not require that you take an assessment to, to figure out what your spiritual gift is. You don't have to feel insecure about what your gift is. If you are feeling insecure about what your gift is, God is saying, do some homework. Right? We really have no excuse to not be aware of what our spiritual gift is. And please, I know that sounds judgmental and condescending. I don't mean it that way. What I mean to say is, let's do it. Get up. Check out, the, the, read your Bible, read through 1 Corinthians 12 or, 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 or Romans 8 or, or Ephesians 4. Read through what the spiritual gifts are in the Bible and say, man, which one do I feel like I'd be most excited to exercise or, or I feel like I could do that, right? There's gonna be plenty of gifts that you can't do and that's okay. God didn't give you all the gifts. He gave you a gift though and he gave you a gift for a certain purpose, to use it for the common good of the body of Christ, and not only has he given you that gift, but he's going to empower you to use that gift. So we really have no reason to feel insecure in using the gift that God has given us. That insecurity is not from the Lord. So God's spirit in you also enables you not just to have the power to exercise that gift, but to use it in the spirit that God has intended it to, namely with a divine love. Whenever we read of love in the Bible, we're, we're, we're reading things that are more than just this feeling like romantic love or, or I love vegetables or whatever it is, right? It's a love from above that's not humanly possible apart from God's spirit at work in us, right? This, this thing called faith, this life of Christianity, you can't do it apart from God's spirit at work in you. You can't be the kind of loving follower of God, or a follower of Jesus or child of God, apart from God's divine work in you. See, apart from God's spirit at work in me and in you, we can't truly be patient and kind. Uh, apart from depending on the Holy Spirit, we're going to envy. We're going to boast. We're going to be arrogant and rude. We're going to be irritable and resentful. We're going, to we're going to rejoice at wrongdoing, as wrong as that sounds. When I live in the flesh and don't depend on God's spirit at work in me, I'm going to rejoice at wrongdoing. That's, that's messed up. But why is this? Though our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. We need to depend on the spirit of God at work in us. And when we depend on the Holy Spirit to enable us, we can, we can love outwardly. We can, we can love others in such a way to rejoice in the truth, to bear all things, to believe all things, to endure all things, and to hope all, in all things. See, I think with, with God's divine love at work in us, we can persevere. That's how we live well and finish well, trusting in God's Spirit to work in us, to love the world around us, to love God and to love others well. The love that God's Holy Spirit gives us then helps us 
to live well and to finish well, to, to, to stand tall in our ministry, to stand tall in using whatever gifts we've been given, and to remember who we are, to remember that we are this loved child of God, and to remember whose we are. So if you're faltering in your ministry this morning, you, you may need to step back a little bit. If you're feeling overwhelmed and exhausted, you may need to step back a little bit and stir up your heart to remember how secure you are in God's divine love. Don't, don't stop using your gift, right? Stir up the ember of God's love in your heart and rekindle that gift that God has given you. Finally, God's spirit in you produces self-discipline. This one's kind of straightforward, but it's, it's the ability to be level-headed. It's the ability to have a measure of, of control over our thinking and our actions, it's the ability to hold our tongues at the right time, and, and it's the ability to choose others when we, when we want to choose ourselves. It's a balanced demeanor that allows us to be beneficial to ourselves and others in various moments that seem out of control. Guys, here in the front row, you may think that everyone's talking about self-control, self-control. They're trying to tell you that because they too struggle with self-control even as adults. It doesn't go away once you get through puberty. It stays with you for the duration of your life. You need to learn to depend on God's spirit in you to give you self-control, right? Church, what Paul is reminding Timothy of here is the importance of tending to his God-given spiritual gift by depending on the Holy Spirit for power and love and self-discipline, self-control for the common good of God's people. See, I, I want us to know that just like Paul, we too can face the finish line of our lives and say we've fought the fight. We've run the race. We've kept the faith. Right? But if you want to enjoy the harvest, you have to tend to the crops. Like, like Paul and Timothy, we, we too can live our lives and finish them well by embodying a sincere faith in Jesus. Right? But by tending to the spiritual gift which we've been given and by not depending on ourselves but depending on God's Holy Spirit that dwells in us and gives us power and love and self-discipline. So Trinity, tend the crops and enjoy the harvest of life God has for you. Live well and finish well. Live with the end in mind which is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, you know, you, I, I think about these words, and I, and, and I just, look, I'm fighting against this desire to go out and myself and do better, to try harder. But Lord, so much of what Paul tells Timothy seems more about surrender more, submit more, depend on more, depend on your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for not just saving us from our sins, but saving us to a new purpose. Challenge, encourage us, Lord, to, to live well and to finish well, to live with the end in mind, and, and not just to think so much about the future that we forget about the daily tending that you are inviting us to, to live out day in and day out. Teach us and enable us and empower us to tend to the crops, that we too might see a beautiful harvest that you've prepared for us. So Father, have your way in us through the life of your son Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.